Uh, Matthew chapter 1. We'll be picking it up at verse 18. Let's continue this series on Matthew's gospel. And with God's help, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 25 this afternoon. So Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. What you're about to hear now is the very word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And praise God for his holy word. Well, friends, this is a text that many Christians, of course, are familiar with, but even non-Christians are familiar with this text, or at least the story surrounding it, because it's often read and taught and heard about over Christmas time, right? We're having sort of Christmas in October, as it were. Uh, Many people are familiar with this story of Jesus' birth, perhaps maybe more so from Luke's Gospel, right? In Luke's Gospel is where you get... Uh, the angels appearing to the shepherds in the field. And Luke's gospel is where you get the story of uh, Mary and Joseph traveling to take the census. They go to Bethlehem, and Jesus is born in the manger. We're very familiar with these images, this story. And Luke's gospel is very much told from Mary's perspective. Uh, the angel appears to Mary uh, in Luke's gospel. Uh, here in Matthew, the angel appears to Joseph confirming the same message, uh, often telling the same story just from different angles. We're familiar with this story. Now, what we have in front of us here, though, is not just a sort of rosy, feel-good Christmas story that we like to tell over the holidays and go back to over the holidays, although that's a good thing to do. What we have here is much more than just a a Hollywood feel-good movie of It's a Wonderful Life or Miracle on 34th Street or even Elf. Now, what we have here, in fact, if I can be so bold to say, is a text that divides. Uh, this is a text that is really going to separate people into two different camps. 
Uh, this is a text that is going to divide people into those who are just religious, perhaps, on the one hand, and those who are truly Christian. This is a text that divides those who appreciate Jesus. He's a, a moral man, a good teacher, perhaps a role model, with those who see Jesus as a savior, God with us, truly the God-man. This is a text that if you listen to it and accept it, it's going to change your life. And this is, as we start Matthew's gospel in this first chapter, what we need to be reminded of. Before we listen to Jesus and watch Jesus through the rest of the gospel, we first need to understand who Jesus is. And what has he come to do? Why has God sent his son into this world? Before we can properly worship Jesus, we actually have to listen and see why did he come. And so as we dive into this gospel, it's important to understand that. Because Jesus' birth has significance for all of human history. And his birth changes everything. So as we look at this portion of Matthew's gospel, I want us to take away a very simple idea. That that very simple idea this afternoon is this. Jesus' miracle, his miraculous birth, calls for us to hail him as king. It's It's very simple. As I said before, Matthew's gospel, his focus in this gospel, compared to other gospel writers, is to hail Jesus as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And in this section, in chapter 1, he wants us to know that Jesus' miraculous birth calls for us to hail him as king. Now, I have two kind of main points, uh, as you see in your insert. First, we're going to look at Joseph, who's a godly man. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on that. I'm going to spend most of my time, though, talking about how Jesus is God become man. But look again at your text here as we see how this angel appears to Joseph, a godly man. Now, Joseph, we see in verse 18, learns Mary, uh, his wife, who's betrothed to Joseph. Uh, Joseph is confronted by a very uncomfortable fact, a very inconvenient fact on this first Christmas, which is his uh, future wife is found to be pregnant. Now, we need to understand a little something about Jewish custom and how um, marriage and betrothal or engagement worked at that time, because here Mary and Joseph are not actually married yet, right? They're engaged to one another. But you need to understand that for Jewish culture and according to uh, the law, uh, the engagement was seen as just as binding as the marriage itself. So two people that weren't engaged were, they're actually in some sort of basically like a legal contract. So although Joseph and Mary hadn't actually been legally married, they were legally binding in a, in a betrothal and an engagement. So when Joseph discovers that Mary's pregnant, it's a big deal. It's very inconvenient, you could say. Now, in this case, the Jewish law actually required in a case of adultery, which this would have been considered, uh, that, that there would be a divorce. It was, the strict punishment for adultery actually was public stoning. It could be called for. There are serious legal considerations here facing Joseph, and particularly Mary, and not to mention when their family and friends hear about this, 
Mary in particular was facing potential shame, uh, even even, um, punishment by the law. You can imagine, what is Joseph going to do? Is Joseph going to, to rush to accuse her? Is Joseph running to the courts to clear his name? Does he grumble and complain against her openly? No. Joseph is a quite the godly example here. Joseph, in his patience, in his kindness, even in his wisdom, is a godly man to parse out and understand what to do in this very difficult situation. Joseph is embodying, as Isaiah says, that man. He says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Joseph is a man who's at peace, even in a very difficult dilemma, because he trusts in God. How do I know that? Why do I think that? Because if you look again at your text, you see Joseph is called a just man. He's a righteous man. He's a man who fears God, a man who listens to his word, a man who seeks God in prayer. Joseph is a man that, yes, he wants to uphold God's law, But as a just man, he's also compassionate. Rather than rashly running to punish Mary, he's seeking the most compassionate way forward. So it says here in verse 19 that Joseph planned to divorce her quietly. Not bringing open shame to her, perhaps not even seeking punishment like he could have. The strictest exactment of the law could have been public stoning, but Joseph doesn't seek that. He's a compassionate man. In fact, he's probably prepared to take on some of the shame himself by quietly divorcing her. Perhaps not totally clearing his name like he could in a very public, shaming way of Mary. And as I think... Joseph says it says he's a just man here. I think it's safe to say that Joseph, in this difficult situation then, went to God in prayer, asking God, what do I do? God, what do I do in this situation? How can I make things clear? How can I seek your will? And so our text says, after Joseph has, he's been considering these things, perhaps wrestling through his conscience, seeking what is the most compassionate way, what is the most just way, what is the wisest way to deal with this. We read this. And Joseph, while he's considering divorcing her quietly, behold, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Well, friends, I don't think this is the norm in the Christian life. We should expect angels to appear to us in dreams, but we should, I think, expect that God will reward those who seek him in earnest, patient prayer. Those who desire to honor his law, to obey his word, and who go to him sincerely, go to him fervently, believingly in prayer to be rewarded with God, uh, by God's answer. And it says more about this unique situation, about Christ's birth here, that an angel would appear to Joseph in this unique way. 
But it is true that for all of us as Christians, I think the ordinary expectation of the Christian life is that God rewards those who seek Him in earnest prayer. Psalm 25, as we sang just a moment ago, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. Is there anyone who earnestly, honestly seeks the Lord in prayer and God fails to answer them? The answer is no. Joseph is a godly example of a man who's patient, persevering in prayer, kindness, wisdom. That's why he's called a just man. But notice here at the end of our passage here, he's also an obedient man, also demonstrating his justness, his uprightness. Because after the angel appears, Joseph... You know, he wasn't quick to rush into judgment against Mary, but what is he quick to do? He's quick to obey the Lord's word, right? As a godly person should be. And when the Lord reveals his will and his way, Joseph immediately takes action. He doesn't delay. He doesn't grumble. He doesn't question the angel. At that point, divorce is no longer even a consideration in his mind. Instead, Acting on the Lord's word, he takes Mary to be his wife. Quietly, reverently, he adopts Jesus into his house. Jesus is born. In other words, Jesus is adopted into the house and line of David, the kingly line. Joseph reverently, obediently gives this baby the name. He's been instructed to give the name Jesus And so, friends, this is the godly example, again, of Joseph as a man who obeys God's word. When he finds himself in a very uncomfortable, a potentially shameful, a very inconvenient dilemma, Joseph is a godly man because he humbles himself before the one true king. This is what the coming of the king meant to Joseph. He submits himself to God's word. Well, friends, I don't know, for every one of you, what your dilemma is today. I don't know what crisis you might be going through. I don't know what conundrum you're facing. I don't know what knot you're trying to untie in your life. But I do know it is always a blessing for you to go to God in patient prayer, persistent prayer. I do know that God is always going to honor you when you put him first in your life, when you submit yourself to his will. I do know that when you put God's will and his word, not just first in your life, I mean, that's the case, but as ruling your life, then all these dilemmas, all these conundrums have a way forward. What we need to take away, what you and I need to take away from this godly example of Joseph is that whatever inconveniences and dilemmas come into your life, seek the Lord, for he is to be found. Listen to his word and let his word counsel you. And then when he does, don't hesitate to obey. Act immediately on it. That's Joseph, the godly man, the man we emulate, because he welcomed the Savior of humanity, into the world. He welcomed this King in this way by reverently submitting to Him 
in obeying God's word. The first thing I want us to see, first main idea I want us, main point from this text that I want us to see is seeing Joseph the godly man. Then we also, of course, need to see Jesus, our Lord, God become man. The last time we saw how Jesus comes from a kingly line, and part of what Matthew's burden is at the beginning of this gospel, why does he start out his gospel this way with the genealogy of all things? It's because he's showing to us that Jesus comes from a kingly line, that God is true to his promises, that there will always be a king sitting on David's throne. And so we do hail him as king because he descends from that line, but we also hail Jesus as king because of his miraculous conception and birth and because of his titles or names. This is a king from the line of David, but he's born unlike any other king in human history. This is a king from the line of David, but he is given titles unlike any other king in human history. And because he's born and conceived in this miraculous way, because he has these titles that identify him, he is worthy, in fact, demands to be hailed as king. It's worthy for us to hail him as king because, as I said, of his miraculous conception. Notice that again in verses 18 and 20, how the scriptures tell us While Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. How? From the Holy Spirit. And again in verse 20, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Mary, a virgin, when she conceived... Joseph, not Jesus' biological father, he's Jesus' adopted father. There's a truth, my friends, that we believe, we take God's word on. And didn't we confess it earlier in the service, that we believe this truth? Apostles' Creed, we believe Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I wonder if you've ever read this story. Or you've heard it around Christmas time, maybe other times. And you've heard criticisms against Christianity. Something like this. Yeah, Christianity has a story of a virgin conception and birth of Jesus, but so does the Egyptian god Horus. So does the Roman myth, the founding of Rome with Romulus and his brother Remus. So does the Persian god of, uh, so does the Persian god of Mithra, and many other pagan myths. Have you ever heard this before? Jesus and Christianity—they're just another pagan myth out there of a virgin birth and conception. So we can't take it any more seriously than any other myths. I wonder if you've heard that. Sounds challenging at first, but these claims. These criticisms against the virgin birth have serious problems. And so I just want to give you three responses that if you ever hear these criticisms, you have something to 
respond with? How do we as Christians understand the virgin birth and conception? Very miraculous, of course, much higher than we can understand, but at least understand this. Number one, the virgin birth and miraculous conception of Christ were not invented by Christians. They weren't invented by Christians to help their cause. That's the important thing to note. Why would Christians invent a story about Jesus' conception and birth to help their cause so that people would believe in Christianity? We know this is not the case. It's not plausible because for Jews to invent such a story would have been anathema. A Jews to believe that somehow God would raise up a man from nothing to be divine just like any other man would have been mixing pagan myth into their gospel story. And Jews would have scoffed at this idea, trying to convert people by mixing together some pagan myth from other religion into their scriptures. And it would have seriously called into question all testimony after that about Jesus and the gospel. In other words... Mixing together a pagan myth with Christianity would have made it much more difficult for Christians to spread the gospel. And so there is very little plausible reason to believe that Christians have borrowed this story from pagan myths to help their cause. Number two, pagan myths don't hold the same beliefs about divinity. People have this criticism about Christianity just being another pagan myth. Well, let's understand that for pagan mythology, they don't have the same idea about what is divine or who is divine. What I mean is, often in these non-Christian pagan myths, they teach about maybe a certain human ruler who later became divine as a lesser god. There's sort of a lesser ordering of divinity. So many of these rulers after their birth, became divine. So, for example, no one ever thought that Caesar Augustus was the one true God who made the heavens and the earth. But they did think that Caesar Augustus, later after his birth, somehow became God and ascended into some sort of realm of the gods, but was a lower God among many. Well, that's very far from the claim that the Bible makes about Jesus as being very God even from before the existence of the earth. But Christianity also did not borrow from pagan myths. We can see this because, number three, there's obvious dissimilarities between Christianity and pagan myths. Someone says to you, oh, it's just like any other mythological story, this story of the virgin birth. That's just not true. In Egyptian mythology, Horus' mother, for example... Um, I, uh, Isis, she was already married to the god Osiris before um, Horus's conception. So the best Egyptian accounts of that myth actually reveal that Horus was not born of a virgin. His mother had already conceived in another natural way. Well, people just have their facts wrong when it comes to that story. Or take Romulus, for example, the founder of Rome. His mother, Rhea, was said to be a vestal virgin before conception. She claimed that the god of Mars actually raped her. But that's not a virgin birth. And people make that comparison. In fact, she was 
raped by the god Mars, it was said, but then later on, according to primary sources, it says she was raped by someone else, not even Mars, a god. So Romulus was not a god at conception, but according to myth, he actually later on became a god. So he's not born of a virgin, nor is he a god at birth. So when people make this comparison with Christianity, they actually don't know all the facts of that myth either. And so there's a very obvious dissimilarity with the Christian story. Or take the Persian mythology of Mithra. People hear, oh, this, uh, this god Mithra is just, this is where Christianity borrowed its story of the virgin birth from. Well, if you actually look at the story of Mithra, this pagan story, they believe that Mithra was born as an adult and was born out of a rock. So hardly the virgin birth story that Christianity has claimed. And Christianity could not have borrowed from this kind of birth story. Now the point is, I want us to see here, we need to understand there's such a dissimilarity between Christianity and what we believe and all these other pagan myth stories. And there is no story that predates Christianity that tells of a God-man who's performed certain miracles, who was born of a virgin, who saved his people, who died and was resurrected. So from Romulus to Horus to Mithra to Caesar Augustus, even Buddha, all these other stories are not only dissimilar from Christianity, they all come after Christianity. So if anybody's borrowing from any myth story or any scripture, it's these pagan myths that are borrowing from Christianity. So yes, Christians believe Jesus' conception and birth is completely unique. It is miraculous. It's unlike yours or mine. It is truly divine and miraculous. Now, do you and I understand everything about it? Do you ever wonder, what does this mean, that the Holy Spirit um, conceived Jesus and Mary? I mean, do we understand scientifically how all this works? No, we don't. But we need to understand that it is essential to the Christian faith, and it's not something we can just dismiss. Because his miraculous and conception and birth are unique, it means that Jesus deserves to be hailed as king. But he's also worthy to be hailed as king because of his titles or his names. And we're giving, given two titles here in the text that we need to look at here. First of all, Jesus, his title is Savior. You know, Jesus, this name comes from the Hebrew name Yeshua, Joshua. Joshua and Jesus, same name. One is Hebrew, Joshua. Jesus is the Greek form of that. But both of those names mean Yahweh saves. This is why the angel tells Joseph to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from his sins. Jesus, you see the point? He's not just a king like every other king that's come before him. All other kings of the world have been concerned with physical territory to govern. They've been concerned with political power. All other kings have been concerned with perhaps liberating a people or conquering a physical military enemy. When the angel appears to Joseph and announces, you shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from his sins, that's the point. That's the kind of king that Jesus is. He is a savior who has come to liberate, to free people from bondage to sin, 
to save people from the wicked one who has enslaved them. Sin makes us enemies with God. And because of sin, we fail to meet God's standard of righteousness. We owe God perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. And every day we fail to meet that. Every day our guilt, our debt increases all the more. We can never live up to his standards. And God, as a just God, he will punish those who fail to meet his standard of righteousness. And by that standard, we all deserve eternal punishment, don't we? We know from Scripture that one day Christ will come again and there will be a judgment on all peoples. What we need, therefore, is a Savior. We need one who will save us from our sin, who will save us from God's judgment against sin that is certainly coming. And Jesus' birth proves that he is this promised Messiah, Savior for our sins. As we read earlier in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved his world, this world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. The name of Jesus. This is why he's worthy to be hailed as king. Jesus' birth proves the fundamental purpose he came into the world was to save sinners. So friends, in this gospel, Matthew is confronting you with this life-altering truth. If you understand who Jesus is, and you understand who you are, then you must respond accordingly. You must confess Him as King. You must look to Him in repentance and faith and believe that He saves us from our sins. That's His title. That's His first title, Savior. But He's also given another name here, Emmanuel. Verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now Matthew, the the gospel writer here, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And there's been a lot of commentary written about how Matthew, why Matthew uses this verse here, what exactly is being fulfilled. But what I want us to see is I want us to see the main reason why Matthew includes this, which is the point that, you see, Jesus is not only born of a human, but he is also very God. He is God with us. Let's not lose sight of that main purpose here. To show us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's like us in every way in our human nature, yet he's without sin. But at the same time, he's also fully God. He knows people's hearts. He has power over demons. He has power over sin. He speaks with authority. He declared things like, I and the Father are one, because he is Emmanuel, God with us. 
It's important for us to remember, maybe it's obvious to many of us, especially if you've been in the church for a while. We need to understand that for many people, it's not so obvious because they see Jesus as just another man. He's a good man. He's a good teacher, maybe an excellent teacher. Uh, he's a moral man, perhaps one of the most morally upstanding people who's ever lived. But for many people, even some people who claim to be Christian, he's still just a man. We need to understand from this text, we need to be reminded afresh. He is fully man, but he is also fully God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. While that's, again, hard for us to grasp, how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? It is nevertheless true, and it is essential for our salvation that it is true. The fact that we can't get our minds fully around it should humble us. Samuel Rutherford once said, my salvation is the second greatest miracle that God ever performed. The first is his incarnation. If you want to have If you want to have assurance in your Christian life, then you always need to keep at the front of your mind the incarnation of Christ, his divinity, that he is fully God. Because he is fully God, he is able to save you from your sins. Because he is fully God, he is able to preserve you for your entire Christian life, no matter how many times you sin. Because he is fully God, he will defeat his enemies. He will crush all wickedness under his feet. Because he is fully God, he will come again to bring in his new heavens and his new earth. That is what is going to give you assurance in the Christian life. He fully obeyed God's law and is perfect. He's fully God. At the same time, If you want to have comfort in your Christian life, then you always need to keep Jesus' humanity in the front of your mind as well. Because Jesus was and is fully human, he can sympathize with you and your weaknesses. Because Jesus was fully human, he knows what it's like for you to fail. Yes, Jesus experienced weakness and was without sin, but he knows what it's like for you to experience temptation. Because Jesus was fully human, he knows what it's like for you to fear. He knows what it's like for you to be attacked, to be mocked, to be scorned. If you're to have comfort in the Christian life, you must keep his humanity before your eyes of faith. We must hail Jesus as king because of his miraculous birth and conception, but also his messianic, his kingly titles of Savior and Emmanuel. My friends, I want to close by thinking about what all that means for us as Christians. Perhaps two bigger points of application as we think about the truths of Jesus' birth and what it means for our lives and in a Christian faith. The two takeaways for your Christian life. This text teaches us, first of all, that Christianity, what kind of religion it really is. 
what kind of religion Christianity is. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that religion is man seeking God. Christianity is God seeking man. I think what he meant by that was religious people, other religions believe that the way to have peace in life, the way to have comfort, the way to have assurance, security, power even, is by you finding God, by you doing what you can to work your way to God. If you have the right knowledge, if you have the right spiritual practices, if you work hard enough, you will find all of these things. This is what all religions of the world teach. You seek religion, you seek God, and the work that you do will pay off. And if you don't, by the way, if you don't have peace in your life, if you don't have assurance of some kind, if you don't have joy or comfort, it's because you didn't seek hard enough. It's because you didn't have all the knowledge that you're supposed to have. You weren't privy, perhaps, to some secret knowledge. Well, friends, that's not what Christianity is at all. Christianity is not you seeking after God in the end. It's about God seeking you. Because the fact is, you and I, prior to God seeking us, we are lost. We are dead, the Bible says, in sin. How can you seek after God when you're dead? We are in blindness. We are in darkness. The fact of The fact of the matter is, we need God to come seek us, to be with us, and pull us out of all that. And this is what Christianity really is. Not about what you do and what you have done, but it's all about what Christ has done for you. You need God to seek after you. The gospel is not ultimately a way of life that you do. The gospel is a proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Christianity is the only religion in the world where salvation is received and not achieved. The gospel of Jesus Christ, God's own son, become a man in order to save you from your sins. That's what Christianity is, is God seeking you in Jesus Christ. And that's going to bring me to the last thing, the second thing. I want us to see that this text tells us, it tells us why we need Jesus. I've already alluded to it. Christianity is unlike any other religion because Christianity says you can't save yourself. There's no amount of good works that you can do. There's no extent of pedigree that you can come from. There's certainly no amount of money that can buy it. There's certainly no extent of education that can make you smart enough to save yourself. No matter how far you climb in the career ladder, no matter how many promotions you can achieve, that won't do either. What you and I need, we need a sinless Savior who is truly human and truly God. No one born of a human father and a human mother is free from sin. We all in this room inherit the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. We all stand condemned before God. And God's justice demands that that it be satisfied. 
His claim, the claims of his justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or another. But there's no mere human being that can pay for the sins of another. And there's no creature that can pay for this debt, not any animal or any other sacrifice. We need a Savior who is truly human like us, can represent us, but also one who's truly righteous. We need a Savior who's true God because by his divine power, he can bear the weight of God's wrath against sin and earn for us and restore to us righteousness in life. Jesus is that Savior because we all inherit the sin of Adam and Eve. The virgin birth is necessary. It's not just some add-on. It's not just some nice story in the Christian faith. The virgin birth is necessary because from Adam and Eve, every single generation is sin. Adam and Eve give birth to their descendants. Those descendants give birth to sinners who give birth to other sinners, who give birth to other sinners all the way, so it goes throughout human history until Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is born of the Holy Spirit, conceived of the Holy Spirit, meaning he does not inherit the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. This text shows that Jesus is the spotless Savior who can pay our debt of sin. If he was not spotless from conception, if he was not sinless from birth, then we would not have a perfect mediator. We would not have someone who could stand in our place. We would just have any other impure, sin-tainted human and not a Savior. And not only was he conceived without sin, but he lived a sinless life. He lived a completely righteous life. He never disobeyed God's word. He never earned God's wrath, his punishment for sin. And yet, this is how God has shown his love for us. He sent his son Jesus to die for our sins in his place, in our place. He paid the penalty that you and I deserve. His death on the cross paid the debt of sin. And God's wrath against sin was completely poured out on Christ at the cross. And as a sign of victory over sin and death, Jesus rose again from the grave on the third day, showing God's acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice. Now God will bring his plan of salvation to completion. And one day Jesus will come again as king, reigning even now, he will come again. And as king on that day, as a just king, he will enact his justice against sinners. So friends, on that day, will you be able to call Jesus by his titles? Will you be able to personally say, my Savior, my Emmanuel, God with me? This is my king. Because without that, you'll take God's punishment upon yourself. As Joseph heard the angel speak this word to him, speak a message to him, Joseph, as a godly man, hailed Jesus as the king that he is. I'm no angel. 
but I'm your messenger today. Are you going to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you received him? Godly answer is to hail Jesus as your king. So I'm here to implore you to do that today. To receive Jesus as king. To repent of sin. Deciding to forsake it. Receiving Christ through faith as a living person. Living on his righteousness. And as Christians, being assured Because Jesus is very God, he has the power to sustain you throughout the Christian life. And because he's fully man, he knows what it's like when you struggle in the Christian life. Is Jesus your Lord? You hailed him as king. You understand this text today. You'll see that hearing it in this message and only leave us with two kinds of people. Those who think Jesus is just another story, or those who see Jesus for who he is, as a life-changing Savior, God with us. That's the gospel. That's why we need Jesus. His birth proves his purpose came into this world to save sinners. Friends, let's go to him now in prayer and ask that he would press this word home to us in our hearts.